Culture Eats Strategy for Lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. I'm Lee Harper, machine learning person with over a decade in data AI. With us today is Darren Darren is a data professional that has been working on the customer side in sales engineering for 25 years and is currently the U.S. Director of Consulting for Data and AI at Kendrill. Darren Childs has experience as an enterprise data architect, cloud solution data architect, and has worked for Fortune 300s as well as small research groups. He most recently helped several Department of Health agencies through the COVID-19 health crisis. One of his many achievements includes work that stacked the data for the Human Genomics Project at the University of Utah which later Dr. Caprici was recognized with a Nobel Prize for his efforts. We are very excited to have Darren Childs, the data bear, on our podcast. Welcome, Darren. Hey, everybody. How are you? Let's do some data. Uh, Let's do data. All right. So, Darren, you have a not-so-secret project that you're working on right now, a book on building data culture. That's true. There's an interesting story there as to why an engineer by trade wants to write a book when most of our, our compatriots, you know, rebel at writing documentation. So, so why are ta- you taking on this Herculean journey? Well, there are a couple of different factors that really kind of set towards it. Definitely writing is not my strength, and the proofreaders of my book will share that with you. But the first thing that happened is I, I really felt like through my time at Microsoft and my time in industry, I had started to build, um, a portfolio of events that's stronger than most, more exposure and, and than most. Additionally, I've had a lot of success. We've, we've been able to build successful modernization efforts through different, different layers and, and different times throughout this process. And I really wanted to abstract the root causes for that, the root causes for that in, in doing so. I, w- I was, at first I started by finding approaches and architectures and writing white papers of how, you know, we could have some success and they were successful, but they didn't really ever give the entire gamut from start to finish. And they didn't address, a lot of those were more technical and they didn't address some of the more difficult things, which are often changing the people and the processes and the environment where I felt like if I would step back and, and write a book, I would have that time to add the thought leadership into the people and processes, as well as the technical, the technical revolution that's going on in data right now. Yeah, I love how you put that a portfolio of events, right? And so then you took that, your time at Microsoft, your time prior to Microsoft, and looked at that portfolio and saw patterns, right? And there's, so there's several different patterns. And a few pod episodes ago, we actually had Amy Hulse. And so she referred to, you know, your successes above many of your peers and what that did to drive. So your book of business and how you stood out amongst everyone else. So what were some of those common pieces in those portfolio of events that you noticed? Well, one of the first things that, that I have in my perspective is I have a strong understanding for the ecology of, of data systems and solutions today, mm-hmm. they didn't 
they, and, and luckily my career is long enough that I've rode through much of the development of the existing sets of data solutions. And so I made some of those decisions and some of them now I wouldn't make again, but I, you know, I was able to, you know, select different tools many times throughout my career. I, I was able to select patterns and, and also engage in processes and people throughout the years. And so having that firsthand experience for how we got where we're at really gives me an empathetic view of uh, where many people in their environments are today. I'd, I'd like to say it as ecology because very few of the environments that I review today or have in the past re really had one layer. It was usually multiple solutions, multiple architects, multiple, multiple attempts at modernizing. And the, together you get this stack of, you know, Frankenstein solutions that have been customized in each environment. They're very intimidating to many people and overwhelming. They don't intimidate me. And so that gives me an advantage because I can rationally look for that place of point of entry. And then also because I, you know, developed many of those technologies, you know, I'm not intimidated to replace them. I, I can help, you know, with ideas and concepts around replacing them quickly and, and, you know, how you undo the, the string of ball that you've created. Yeah. It's kind of like walking into an old house where every single owner that ever had that house was somebody that took on lots of projects, right? And so you just kind of walk in and say, oh, well, this is what this person did when they redid the kitchen. And then now this person, the next owner redid the bedrooms, right? It's almost like the, the, the house's ex purpose for existing was to, to be redone and remodeled by every owner that came in. So we get, we get this, as you say, ball of twine or Franken monster of architectures because everybody coming in wants to put their imprimatur upon, you know, the architecture. They feel like it's, it's not just enough to do what might've been successful before. Yeah. It also was the ecology of the tools. So, you know, we started yep. writing d data solutions right off the sources. And that was, you know, at one time, an acceptable practice. And sadly, <laughs> there's still some doing it. I, you know, there's still some of those. And then, you know, enterprise data warehousing came out and that, you know, was really the focus for a very long time. And we used the, you know, extract, transform, load pattern to to load those enterprise data warehouses, which obviously mm -hmm. didn't scale well. And later, you know, the transactional nature of it started having performance problems. And then, you know, along came big data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all jumped out and went ran out and got our cloud error work certifications. And you know, next thing you know, we're building data lakes and and the adoption of big data was never strong. It, it never really landed well. And you know, so many organizations today have the remnants of all of these different layers of the current best practice, you know, stacked upon each other with dependencies that are driving their business. And, you know, they need a way around, they need a way to replace. And, and each of those layers had great capabilities. Some of those capabilities, the enterprise data warehouse the modeling efforts that we put into it often did a really good job of describing the business and the business practices. The big data allowed us to ingest data elements that we couldn't in the past. And we would get these, you know, large data lakes going and 
sometimes they grew out of control and we turned them into data swamps. And that, you know, that, that, that was part of the reason the business never really strongly embraced it is because it was overwhelming. And, uh, so now we need to find a way where we can take the best of all of those practices and we can take the compliance needs of, of today and build out an approach and a solution that will give you the capabilities of the data lake, the capabilities of the enterprise data warehouse, the capabilities of a modern governance suite and build it in a single data lifecycle. Uh, and that will give you a path, a, you know, a path around that, you know, that Frankenstein monster that you're trying to manage. You know, something that hit me on what you said, and I know there's going to be strong opinions on people who eventually listen to this, but you mentioned adoption of big data is not strong, right? If you span many industries, many sizes of customers, you know, many different portfolios, you can see where these things happen and don't happen. But I think there's going to be people who strongly disagree with that statement because there's this bias towards the advice on, that comes out of big tech, right? Or the folks that are, have more of the bent towards technology enablement than anybody else. And so these, there's, there's a lot of patterns and advice that come from there. But you know, and just that one statement, the adoption of big data is not as strong, kind of hits at that point. So what, what do you see on advice that's been given from presumed patterns of big tech and other companies that just doesn't work for everybody else or for the, for the vast majority? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is determine what, what measurement really allows you to assess a data system and whether it's beating, meeting the business's needs or, or the organization's needs. And, you know, if your measurement is uh, the number of, you know, the no number of gigabytes that you load each day, then big data has been very successful because <laughs> they're loading large amounts of data. But if your measurement is, you know, the understanding of the business uh, being, you know, given insights that they wouldn't have expected or insights that, you know, are expected, then big data hasn't been as successful as many would plummet to be or, or claim it to be. In fact, many times when we do our analysis for governance, we do listening sessions across large business units and we hear them very frustrated with the, with the data lakes and, and their inability to access it. Uh, we also find that people have misused the tools often with, with big data. Um, and we'll find that they've found, you know, we can take a new visualization tool like Power BI and point it at a data lake. So we'll just load everything in the data lake. And, and now, and now you have Power BI, boom, all your questions are answered. And to, you know, if you think about your parents, and I can't, I can't tell you that the organization this is with, but it was a large American airline that we were working with. And as we were working with them, we learned that they had deployed Azure Databricks to be the solution for end users. So I want you to think about, you know, when you go to the airport and you meet that clerk that checks your luggage. Just think about the technical capabilities, who those persons are, what they are. And can you imagine giving them Databricks as the solution to, to, you know, glean insights? They didn't use it and they never will use it. That, you know, it just isn't going to happen. 
Um, I think of my mom could have and nor, more. And nor during holiday travel would I want them to use that. Right. Yes. <laughs> Spin up your square cluster and now you Deeply shocked that you have <laughs> people on baggage and people on check-in don't want to write or load Python functions and execute PySpark code. Right. Bre breaks my heart. But definitely, you know, definitely the architecture that came from big data and from those deployments has brought some great capabilities to the market. And if we learn some lessons about some of the things like the one I just mentioned, and we learn yeah. some mm -hmm. lessons about, you know, some of those opportunities within big data, and then we look at the new hyperscaler solutions, you know, Azure AWS, I'm very familiar with both of those. And they both have a nice facade that goes on top of that data lake. That can be an excellent data discovery tool. And we can use that to discover insights and develop insights. But when it comes to delivery to the front end, we probably, you know, should focus more on tools like Power BI and Tableau to, you know, build out those exposures to customers. And, and then, you know, those larger user groups will be, you know, familiar with those and, and able to use those easily. And one thing and, that... And it's different in every shop. Uh, you know, the other thing that we're finding is that this, this Frankenstein monster is a different monster in every shop. They've all made different decisions along the way. One kind of, I guess, emerging, like the emerging trend that's here already is a number of platforms, Databricks being one such platform that's claiming to be the all-in-one. And this is all you're going to need. This is your single thing that's going to, you know, they like the end user be this, 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 and this. From what you're seeing right now in your experiences, how near are we to an all-in-one platform? And should that even be a thing that we want to aspire to? Is, is there a value in having some differentiation between parts of the data stack? Well, I think we're a ways off having a real, true, all-in-one platform. I think if you look at some of the solutions that uh, Microsoft is developing right now, that's probably what I would consider the closest to a single all-in-one platform. But it's it, it would be a mistake to force an environment to be pinned to just those tools. Um, I think that the best practices are going to end up being a mix of utilities that provide a uniform set of capabilities. And I also think the best practices are going to be more about aligning the tools to to the problem and to the customers. And you know, I had the opportunity to help quite a bit during COVID with the Department of Health around the country. And, you know, there are, there are some really user groups in there. We had data scientists that, you know, were consuming data as a consumer. We had data scientists that were, you know, modeling data and building things and actually reporting to, you know, to public agencies and things of that sort. It built a really unique uh, consumption pattern and, and, and usage collection of users. And so I think that was a really good example of how we had to select different tools to meet the different needs. I think that's that, that, that time period forced us forward a bit in understanding our customers and forced us, you know, to integrate with people in ways that we never have that they meant an almost immediate transition to home users it had a big influence on how the, the future of data will be. Um, and so I, I think it'll be a mix of tools, but I think what's more important is that you get the opportunity to integrate those capabilities and to get a single lifecycle. 
And if you can develop a single life cycle that supports data science, supports data discovery, supports data governance, and, and, you know, if you can uniform that inside of your process, if it has four tools on it, that won't matter. But if you can get that single life cycle, what we're seeing today is that there's many life cycles in many shops, you know, one business unit has a completely different life cycle than the next business unit. One business, you know, we are seeing that, you know, the data lake has a set of consumption patterns off of it that are embraced in the business. And then the data warehouse, a completely different set of consumption patterns. And then, you know, AI is being done off on someone's laptop and not even being supported with, with a life cycle. And governance is being done, you know, in the chief data officer's office and not really integrated in the life cycle at all. And I think that's the piece that if you can address the people and uniform the life cycle, then having three or four tools in that life cycle probably aren't the end of the world. That's probably pretty manageable. Also, there's, we, need, we have some technical debt that just really needs to be honestly addressed and, and taken care of. Organizations that are in the acquisition and merger spaces where I've seen this the worst, but when they, you know, they merge with another group, then you get two data lakes and then you get two data lakes and then you get, and suddenly this organization's merged with three groups and, you know, you've got three different data warehouses and three different data lakes and three different, you know, in cases like that, that's just sheer technical debt and they have to honestly address it and go after it and start unifying those solutions to a single one. The good news is, is the new tools are faster, easier to use, easier to implement, cleaner, lower cost. And so there's some, there's financial advantage and, you know, just common sense advantage in replacing the, this 23, 28, 30 year ecology with some of the new solutions. I love the, the life cycle perspective there. And Darren, you and I have talked enough. I couldn't agree more on that. I think there's a balance on the number of tools, right? You don't want 50 in your architecture stack, but you don't, it, you really, in many ways, don't want just one either. But the more important thing is how quickly can you actually get that change? Do you have consistency in how you get those things out? And so the, I, I both love and hate these metrics. I love them because they're very telling. I hate them because they're still tech metrics, but it's, it is a way to communicate the organization's ability to, and so what I've talked to a lot of clients, like, don't care. I don't care about the rest of what you're looking at. What's your lead time and what's your deployment frequency, All right? Because then that hits on what you just mentioned. What's your, your ability to manage those life cycles? And then we'll worry about how much it costs you to do that. Like you can have good measures, but it costs you a lot to do that. And you can have crappy measures and it doesn't cost you much, but either one speaks to your ability to answer, like, as you were saying, that next business question. And it's pretty funny that, you know, we're data experts, we work in the data field, but I can't believe how many of our environments are not managed by data. Uh, it, it, it's <laughs> quite surprising when you go in there. A question I ask, in nearly every conversation when I'm starting with a new customer is, uh, how do you get access to data? How do you get access to your new systems if they come online? And how do you get access to your old systems if there's a data element you don't have access to data? And I can't tell you how many very mature leading organizations in the country cannot answer that question. And I could see part of it being, yeah. I still see, and I'm sure you saw a similar thing, that a lot of data is managed by 
IT departments who are typically more accustomed to managing software projects and software. And yes, there's code involved. Should it be true to software? Yes. But data is not software. Right? It's, it's, it's software and data is slippery. It's evolving. It doesn't sit still. Have you seen more or less success in centrally managed I guess IT or shadow IT department managed projects versus ones that are more federated out to smaller departments and groups? Or does that kind of just cause a lot of confusion and headaches for people? So I wouldn't rate them in that category. So I've seen centrally managed succeed when they have a good relationship with a business. And I've seen business manager, business centric fail because they, you know, they don't have that relationship. So I think the, the correlating item on the success and win in those data elements is really that the two have a relationship, a strong relationship and can work together. And, um, whether you slide the responsibility over to the business or you slide the responsibility over to it, that actually seems to be not correlated with wins that, that, you know, what seems to be correlation with wins from my experience is when the two have a really strong relationship and they work well together. And so I think you could win both ways. I personally like the idea of identifying clear responsibilities for the technology group and clear responsibilities for the business. I think that's just a natural step to kind of help build that relationship. Also, when an IT, when an IT group keeps the business out of the data discovery and out of accessing the data, that's just failure. That's just blatant failure. That doesn't work at all. It, it leads to distrust in the two groups and, and that just, that, that one is an anti-pattern. But I think the real key to those is that you establish responsibility in both groups and you provide the opportunity for the business to help define the business logic, for the business to help identify, you know, which fields actually bring the insights that they're looking for and the technology group to repeatedly and regularly and quickly provide access and manipulation to those elements once that business logic is defined. So Darren, you know, you mentioned the, the, at the beginning, you had this whole portfolio of events that has allowed you to do many, many observations over many clients in many industries. And now you've indexed those observations in, in, you know, your own mind and your own notes, right? And that has led you to this book that you're, that you're working on now. So who is, who's the audience? Like who, who are you writing this for and what do you want to help them do? It's a really important question because I really want to open the scope to the right audience. And obviously I'm targeting chief data mm-hmm. officers. I'm targeting lead architects and engineers, but I also want to expand it out a little bit. It's got to be soft on the technical um, side. I had discussions with publishers that wanted more technology that, because I also want to grab that executive or leader in a business that is the stakeholder that is driving that transformation. And they may not always fall in those, you know, really identified positions of chief data officer or the position of, you know, the position of the, you know, enterprise data architect or 
the position of the chief technology officer and, you, you know, you run the, the CDO office underneath you. Those places are most likely, and I would like to, to target them, but I just want to make sure that, you know, that, you know, that business driver that really sees the value of data, you know, that maybe, you know, a director in a, in a department or a director in a business and is really trying to strive for change can also, you know, process through this book and, and, you know, come up with ways to interact with their, their IT group and help their IT group, you know, reach out. Hopefully they'll be pushing my book at the IT group, whoever those key stakeholders yeah. are. But so it's, it's, it's really around those that are going to be involved with the data and the modernization and, and developing the data culture. Awesome. And what, um, you know, what are some of the topics that you plan on covering? I mean, are you going to go dive into things like both patterns and anti-patterns? You know, what are some interesting things that folks can expect to see in your book? Well, the first thing I start with was a little bit of, I start with a little bit of history. I talk about this transformation that happened during COVID that it isn't really correlated to the COVID event, but somehow someone lit a fire during COVID and every organization is looking at their data right now. Every organization is looking at refactoring and nearly every organization falls into one of two categories. They, they're either on their way of refactoring their data or they're they want to, and they're trying to figure out how to get started. So I start with that. Second, I start with a little bit of the ecology history. And then I talk about, you know, I'll explain mm -hmm. how big data, what it brought to the market, what a data warehouse brought to the market, a little bit of that history as well, and explain how people ended up with all those different capabilities in, in a single environment. Uh, but then I get to, you know, where do we start? And and, mm -hmm. you know, I talk a little bit about the personas and the people that are involved in making these changes and how they've had success. The ones that I've watched and observed successfully, how those personas have, have, you know, effectively driven the chain. Then I think you need a parallel path. I think you need to refactor the strategy or the data solutions, and you need to refactor the people and processes. So it, it's really going to be split into two lines. It's actually one of the pieces I'm working on right now is how do I address that change from people and processes to the new technologies? I'm trying to figure out how mm -hmm. to put those together right now, but I think it's going to end up with, you could start at chapter three, <laughs> you could start at chapter three <laughs> and do people and processes, or you could start at chapter seven and do solutions. And, and, uh, and there'll probably be two chunks of the book that you could read first or, or second, and it wouldn't matter. And we'll, you know, have those organized and we're in the process of trying to identify how I make that transition and how they get there. But though that, those two sh sections will really be the key to the book is how do you change the people and how do you change the solutions? So in, in one of the other key insights that you had, and, and when we were talking prior to, you know, this recording, you found a key thing needed in these transformations is someone willing to take charge and be responsible and drive that change. So what does that look like? You know, and you can provide, you know, start with patterns or an anti-pattern, but what does that look like to you? So I'm still looking for the name of that person. And earlier <laughs> in my career, I could find the person that drove an organization and I often called it the guy. Although it wasn't always men, it was sometimes, yeah. often it was women, 
but the guy was the person that could actually help you get through the process or the change that you were looking for. In, mm-hmm. in building a data culture, you have to find, and it's usually going to be someone in some sort of leadership position, but you have to find a sponsor that is willing to hold people accountable, but also willing to allow, you know, creation and, and, and people to, you know, to make mistakes and, and learn from their, from the mistakes that they make. And so finding that person that's willing to, you know, demand the change. Sometimes the driver for that could be, you know, a loss of business. Sometimes the driver for that could be an opportunity that's been missed or a competitor that had success. So we, we hear all kinds of different things that seem to motivate this person, but that person, mm-hmm. when they're willing to, you know, take ownership of bringing data forward, it becomes an important piece. And then they become the key stakeholders. If I was to kind of quantify according to the different roles, I've seen several chief technology officers be the leader and drive for that. Mm -hmm. I've seen enterprise architects and sadly as a a former data enterprise architect, I've seen more solutions architects than I have data be the leader in that change. And they start down that transformation from the applications and and then they quickly realize that data is a critical part to that transformation and they want to drive the change for the data systems as well. Uh, but I've also seen, you know, enterprise data architects take that, that responsibility. And I've seen, um, you know, random business people, um, some of the companies that I'm working with right now, I'm working with, a um, a CTO and I'm working with, um, a director, a director of data and analytics and, 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 you know, those are all within the common positions. I've also had business leaders business leaders drive the change. Some of the largest government data warehouses that I've been involved with and probably some of the largest in the world were led by business leaders. And, and they've, you know, they've shown extreme value and understanding of data from the start. And they were willing to put pressure on IT to, to meet with them and then to help find someone like myself that could help drive, you know, those, those changes for their environment. I like how you use the word demand or demand and then finally demand the change, right? I think that's a, a key thing because it it's almost like the leader, the person that you identify that or persons could be more multiple that are helping drive that change, but they are the ones, it almost has to come in that form, it seems like a demand because even if we see a change we want, it's still hard to change habits. And there has to be that discomfort before there's a new comfort, right? Mm-hmm. Move through the change to get to where we can be in a better place. One other so funny, Darren, how do people, oh, sorry, go for it. Yeah. One other funny aspect about this is I'm not sure it always happens on the first try. We discover many shops yeah. <laughs> that have made an attempt and, and for some reason these either either stalled or, or they have failed. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it, Sometimes it takes a little bit and some of those failures actually make it much more difficult for the people change, you know, on a second time or a third time. They're like, we've already done this. It doesn't work. You know, you, that those, those failures can really be a problem to overcome, but not every shop that I've worked with has had success the first time they try to drive through this. In fact, I would say most of the shops that I've 
come in and helped have made prior attempts before we were able to help them out. Yeah, in fact, although we didn't make a formal index for it, we were leery of shops that had, you know, potential customers that had never attempted anything. It's almost like if they had never attempted anything before, we didn't. We were very cautious about taking that work on because the likelihood of success was a lot lower when it was their first attempt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, one, of, one of our biggest success stories from the past was a, was a customer that had tried so many times that the CTO, you know, kind of threw his hands up and said, just do whatever the marketing person wants. Just work. This is going to be the last attempt at solving this problem. Ended up being a rousing success. And they have been running, you know, on their own now for 10 plus years. Um, but it was multiple, multiple failed attempts to get to, well, we're willing to try anything at this point. Darren, how do people demand that you write the book faster? Like, how do they get in touch with you ideas or things that they might want to, to excerpt or anything else? Is there, how, how do people hear more about you know, Darren's book writing process? Well, the best place to get a hold of me would be in LinkedIn. And there are a lot of people that have asked about when I'm going to finish the book and when it'll be available. And, and I have a lot of friends and data that have offered to participate. I started with some friends, actually Amy Holst that you mentioned that was on a prior project mm-hmm. and her and I started this book. She somewhat motivated me to start putting it together, but I decided that I'm just going to do it myself. And most of that is about coordination and I'm too busy with my business uh, and w- with my activities that, that I have a lot of time to coordinate with someone to work on it with. And so. It's just a lot easier for me to pound it out on the airplane by myself. So, but I, that doesn't mean I don't want to hear other people's experiences. I would love to know other people's experiences. I'd love to know, you know, their feedback. And and I certainly, you know, if someone's interested of how they get a hold of it, I think there'll probably be some pre-release products who are thinking about doing a summary white paper with some of the keys in it. Mm-hmm. And, and we expect to have some of those ready. Also, you know, I think this podcast will be a great place for people to, you know, keep tabs on it. I hope that you'll invite me back again and maybe after the book's out, we can come back and talk about it and uh, we'll share with that. I'm targeting a really high-end publisher. I I don't want it to be through one of the lower-end tech publishers. Uh, I I think of this book as as, uh, in correlation to some of the stuff that like the, you know, Martin Fowler wrote about refactoring databases and stuff. I'd like to be equitable to those. I would like it to be on people's shelves for longer than six months and, and hopefully be something that will influence them for a long period of time as they go through these refactors and transformations. Well, Darren, you definitely have the experience, the insights and the successes that people should very much want to read and hear these things. So we will be doing everything we can to support you. And absolutely, I think people will very much love to hear, you know, where the book is in its draft as you're getting ready to publish so we can cover that again and say, hey, here's the chapters. Names and faces may change to, to, to protect the innocent, but this is where it's going. And then we can have it back on, have you back on again once it's published. So maybe we'll even turn that into a live show where people can ask questions of the author. Just throwing random things out there. Don't be great. too scared, though. <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to share at the end, I was a young architect and working in the real estate industry. 
for a large, large organization heavily involved in, in the real estate industry. And at the time, there was a lot of open access for people of my type to data. Some of the governance rules that limit that now are not in place. And um, I was just trying to figure out how to help the business. And so I sat down one day and I started writing a query about where railroad tracks were in relation to defaulted properties. And that query later turned into turned into a service that could identify high-risk items for properties and adjust, adjust, you know, mortgage properties and servicing costs and frameworks around those properties. And actually later, they, I think they really eliminated the risks of some of those high-risk target places by some of the activities that they added from that. That is the kind of transformation that I believe many, many customers have hiding in their data today. And that's kind of the driver for this is it's really to help as many organizations make that transformation so that they can help their customers or their constituents or, you know, whatever by leveraging those hidden insights that are inside of their data today. I, I say this often, couldn't agree more, right, on that. And Lee's got something that he will frequently tell customers and I, you know, in data science, but I think the same thing applies in data, traditional data and analytics as well. And so he says frequently in data science, Lee, do you know what I'm actually going to say? Which statement? No, I don't. Surprise. Beat the baseline. Okay. Okay. Beat the baseline, beat the baseline. Right. And the reason he says that is it's practical and it doesn't strive for perfection. It just strives for making the condition better. And so when we look at like a lot of the the Pick, Kimball, and many of the other things is that so many people were striving for more perfect systems versus just systems that beat the baseline, i.e. things like simple things that you did. Wasn't perfect, the query you wrote, but it gave new insight. Insight, in this case, there was no baseline for the, that insight. So it was like brand new. You created a new baseline. But in other instances, it's just, can we do things to give better more perfect insight so that people can make more informed decisions. There's never going to be the perfect decision. There's never going to be, because as soon as you, you feel like you hit every data element you need, you're going to find 12 others that you don't have that you would like. So, so I love, I love that, that point and that last insight that you shared. It's just like, can we just, what can we do? Focus on making the condition better, not necessarily the, the, the perfection of it. Well, Darren, people are free to reach out to you on LinkedIn. And I think we'll see as the book progresses, maybe we'll see some posts or some other things on LinkedIn as that moves along. Or are you going to be too busy hopping between cities and helping clients out and writing the book in between? Well, we'll definitely be doing some of the, some of the latter, but no, hopefully we're going to stop and, and make some, make some investments in advertising the book. We also will be working with the publisher when that's resolved to identify some introduction opportunities. And then Kendrell, who is the organization that I work with now, Kendrell is going to make some investments in it. And so I'll probably be speaking at some conferences and referencing the book and sharing those. And those will be announced probably, you know, sometime this fall. So, Well, fantastic. We look forward to being published and look forward to having you back on the show. Right. Thank you so much for your time today, Darren. Thanks, Sid. Thanks, Lee. Nice to see you guys. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. 
If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.